Welcome to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. I'm your host, Linda Woolard. This episode is dropping on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and the federal flood that destroyed so much of New Orleans. And of course, we now have that twin anniversary of Hurricane Ida, which hit on the same date, 829. My conversation on this podcast is with Nikita Shavers, and we spend more time than usual on her origin story because her political activism was a direct result of events that followed Hurricane Katrina. The heart of our interview, though, is about her nonprofit work in education and reproductive health care and repro rights, which dovetails with her political work. This season, I really wanted to introduce the individual work being done in our state, the piece that I call Living Our Values, that fills in the gaps where our government and our legislation either fall short or actively harm Louisianans. This is the third leg of the stool of the progressive movement that begins with, number one, campaigns to elect candidates who can bring big sweeping change, continues with number two, advocacy work to educate and lobby elected officials who need a push to do the right thing for the people, and as rounded out by number three, the individual work through nonprofits and progressive businesses that help Louisianans who don't have the luxury of waiting for those changes we're fighting for through those first two avenues. Nakita Shavers, thanks for joining me on Louisiana Lefty. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I always start with how I know my guest and we mm -hmm. met during if I recall correctly during the 2014 mm -hmm. Mary Landrew campaign where I yes. met so many people so many of my guests I believe that have come on I've said it was Mary Landrew 2014 mm -hmm. but you worked <laughs> on that campaign what were you doing for Mary I Landrew did. I worked field I worked in the trenches um that was my fresh out of college first introduction into the hardcore political world. Um, and I love and hated every moment of it. <laughs> it, was a, it was a tough year to for that to be an entrance into politics because it was such yes. a heartbreaking year. What was your activism origin story? Because you got involved in politics through activism. Mm -hmm. I was, while we did not meet this day, I was aware of who you were when mm -hmm. we marched on City Hall after Hurricane Katrina and the flooding. Mm -hmm. What year was that? Was that 2007? 2007, January yeah. 2007. Tell me about that as, and, and how you got involved in activism like that. Yeah. So um, I would say when people ask, I've been an activist, um, my entire adult life, uh, pretty much Hurricane Katrina hit my first day of college. Um, and as you can imagine, that was my freshman year. 
And when I was finally kind of getting my bearings uh, during my sophomore year, while I was home on Christmas break, my brother was murdered. And um, that completely changed the game of any normalcy of a 19-year-old young woman, college student life that I had aspired to have. Um, That kind of definitely changed the game for me. And um, from that moment on, I've been an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been forced to choose society and the betterment of society um, over myself and my needs. And at the time, I didn't see it that way. But looking back um, as a as an adult, I could see that I didn't really enjoy those years because I had so much pressure. Um, to save the world, in a sense. And uh, when my brother was murdered, December 28, three days after Christmas, uh, 2006, which was very fresh after Katrina, um, you're dealing with a very dismantled criminal justice system, broken city. So many people are still displaced. My family is still displaced. At the time when my brother was murdered, um, I the only two family members I had living in the city at the time was my brother and a cousin um, who was a homeowner in New Orleans East. And my brother, who was a musician, he was a founding member with the Hot Eight Brass Band. He was a, an educator, a teacher, and he had come back to help um, retrieve the bodies from the houses and he was helping with the um, with the first responders process, and so he was back here at the city. He was in the a, city. Yeah, he was a really important figure in the community. Yes, yes, no, most definitely. Um, before he died, De Niro was um, like after Katrina, he was teaching at Rob Wayne High School. Um, for those of you who are true New Orleanians. <clears throat> You know that Rob Wynn was always that career magnet school. It was a school where young people went for their trades, right? You went there, focused on your education and your trade. You graduated with cosmetology license and barber license and electrician, you know, all of these things. And um, he went there. Rob Wynn never had the marching units and he never participated in Mardi Gras and he never had... those type of opportunities that all of the other New Orleans high schools had. And after Katrina, he went there and he started that. Um, He got all of these kids together. He created the first ever marching band at Rob Wynn High School. He brought in all of his musician friends to help um, build this band. He started all of the marching units and he brought in all of these amazing um, past dancers and and majorettes to help create um, these opportunities for these young people. And then um, literally he he uh, went after all of the like free grants and money that was out there post Katrina to help get the instruments, get instruments for the kids. And um, three days, days after he was murdered, the instruments all arrived at the school and Um, The kids were literally, you know, in December in New Orleans, you're in full swing. 
focused on Mardi Gras season, right? It's like the holidays, woo, woo, woo. But the big deal is Mardi Gras. So December, you're kind of like, yeah, we're on Christmas break. But when we come back, it's Mardi Gras season. And the instruments and uniforms had arrived. Um, and I remember we did this 48 hours mystery special. And the principal at the time, Kevin George, broke down um, on camera when he was saying when he got back to the school from Christmas break and all of the instruments and all of the uniforms had arrived and he just broke down crying, you know, opening the boxes. And um, that was the reality at the time. Uh, for me, I was a sophomore. I mean, of what was I? I was a, yeah, going into my sophomore year. Uh, the beginning of my sophomore year at Florida A&M and I was home on Christmas break and when my brother was murdered. And from there, he was murdered December 28th. A week later, um, Helen Hill, who was a filmmaker, um, was murdered. And so the following week, a bunch of activists from the city of New Orleans came together and created uh, a March for Survival, which, which was what the name of it was. And um, it was, at that time, that was when blogs, right, social right, right, media, right. it was yeah. like a turn of technology, right? So it was when all of these things were just kind of forming, right? Um, what is this? Immediate access to information. And so the organizers like Beatty, Ken, Helen, um, they didn't expect anything, but like the neighborhood folks, right? Maybe 50, 75 community members to come together. And the morning of, like it, people began to start blogs, you know, that week and social media was a thing. Um, and although it was, Facebook was limited to like the universities at the time, cause I was on there, but, um, it was a new turn in technology that really like helped to explode, you know, and help to get the word out and help to reach all the different communities. And a fun fact, people think that I was here at the time. Actually, my mom and my family was still displaced living in Baton Rouge. And I have finally, from the moment my brother was murdered, December 28th, up until a day before the march, I was stuck in New Orleans. Like we didn't have clothes. I didn't have, we were forced to like plan a funeral, get everything, you know. So I had just gone back to Baton Rouge and they invited us to the march, but I was exhausted. My family was exhausted. And so we had gone back to Baton Rouge and I was preparing to finally go back to school. I was about three weeks late for school at the time. And the morning of the march, um, I was like getting dressed with the television on and it was CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, no lie, was reporting live from New Orleans. And my phone began to ring off the hook and it was like Beatty and Ken and they're like, listen, I know you're exhausted. You're trying to get packed up. But if you you know, this, this march is beyond any of us at this point. And it would not be right if we did not have you all as a part of it. And they were like, if you get in a car, just get in a car right now. The march is about to start. If you get in a car right now, 
you'll make it here just in time when we make it to City Hall. I I didn't even participate in the march because we were driving from Baton Rouge, like literally flying. And my mom, my aunt and I got in a car and they asked if there was any family members here that could be, that could represent the narrow. And I contacted my cousin, who was the only other family member here. And my cousin, Michelle, who hate crowds, hate, you know, publicity, hate all of those things. She marched at the front of the march. You see the original footage next to the hot eight, next to Benny Pete, next to all of my brothers had all of the Narrows had eight brothers and led the march while we sped to New Orleans to like make it just in time to get to City Hall. And I just remember pulling up, jumping out the car. We didn't even park the car. It was just so many people. Somebody got in the car and went parked it. But I just remember they took us by the hand and guided us through the crowd like security and led me up to the stage. And I remember the whole ride, I sat in the back of the car and I wrote a speech. It was on little bitty stickies. It was on small pieces of paper, but I wrote a speech. And as that 19 year old kid, I just spoke from my heart. And um, I remember standing there at the the podium and I'm looking out and I could see Ray Nagin, I see Oliver Thomas, all of the uh, James Carter, all of the council people. And then I see right in the front, it was all of the narrow students. And then all to Duncan, all of it was just people everywhere. And as I began to speak, my papers flew. I just remember the papers just, it was like a strong gush of wind just took all of the papers. And the front of the stage was lined up with all of the media outlets. And I just remember everyone jumping in the air, like all the camera folks, like everybody jumping in the air trying to catch my papers. It was a really funny moment where I was like, all right, then arrow. <laughs> and I just remember his students just started screaming and cheering me on. And any anxiety I had, any fear I had in that moment just disappeared because it was like, this is for y'all. And they were standing there and they were screaming and they were holding his signs and they were crying. And I just remembered pouring my heart out. It was just my love letter to the city of New Orleans. And, um, you know, I remember saying that I want to someday become the first female African-American mayor of New Orleans. Like I vowed to like bring our city back. You know, I, you know, I pleaded with the community to come together and to stand together and, you know, to speak up, you know, on all of these things that were, they weren't just affecting my family, but they were affecting all of us, mm-hmm. right? And so often we wait until we're the victim, you know, to want to speak up. And I really just took that moment to write a love letter to New Orleans, right? It was a very, very sacred and scary time in the city. Mm-hmm. No one knew if we were ever going to come back. 
Well, right. And, and you're talking about this March that the two people you mentioned who were murdered were sort of tip of the spear, right? Like there, there was a lot of violence happening in the city at the moment. So that they were sort of like, that's the straw that broke the camel's back in a lot of people's minds where it's like, yeah, something's got to be done now. Yes. And I, and I, you know, I was born and raised in New Orleans. I was born and raised in the heart of the night ward, right? And for me, it was like, yeah, I want to go to school away. I want to get away. I'm not going to even lie. It was like, I want to make it out the city. That was my goal, right? That was always violence in New Orleans. New Orleans has always been a violent place since the beginning, right? But it was, I'm, I'm going to make it out. I'm going to become someone. I'm going to help my family. You know, I'm getting away and I'm never looking back, right? And it was something about Katrina, even before De Niro was murdered. It was something about Katrina and the thought that something as special and sacred as New Orleans not existing. Like, what is a world without New Orleans, right? So even before De Niro was murdered, it was my goal to make it back to New Orleans after my education, right? Like, wait, I'm, I'm, I could never like leave and never come back like I thought I would, but I'm going to get my education, become a better person, become an, an amazing woman and bring that knowledge back to my city. But when De Niro was murdered, that just made it it made it so much, you know, like, nah, it's immediate. Like, we right. need you now, right? Um, and that's essentially what happened. I helped to start Silence is Violence. Um, I was able to, with Silence is Violence, create a space, music programming, um, different things, outlet, um, just counseling opportunities, different things for the young people at Rob Wynn. And so it was brand new. We were all trying to fill the need out. You know, we had resources. What are the needs? Well, I don't know all the needs, but I know these kids who just lost a man who many of them saw as a father figure abruptly coming out of Hurricane Katrina. They need us. So we went into Rob Wynn. We started um, some therapy programming, some therapeutic programming where myself, Beatty, Ken, the hot eight would go into the school, would talk to the kids. Um, and it was naturally that they felt a very close connection with me because of the age difference. I wasn't too far away from them. And because of the narrow um, and because of the love that they had for them, for him. And then we were able to create music programming that we held at the Sound Cafe for the young people. And that's where like really the nonprofit activism world started to come into full circle for me. Um, so, so let me come interject here so that's that's how you got sort of involved in the space you occupy now is sort of this mix of you know the political and 
activism and nonprofit world. You kind of yes. have all of those melded together. You went from that time and that moment where you realized you were marrying all these things together. So how did you go from that moment to where you are now? That is what taught me the importance of politics, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that post-Katrina era. Um, but also introduced me to the love of nonprofit. Right. And the immediate impact that I can make on young people. When I helped to co-found Silence is Violence in 2008, I officially um, incorporated uh, the Denaro Shavers Education Fund. Okay. And it was back then. Okay. Yes. 2008, uh, we got our 501c3. And um, our official 501c3, I did the entire process myself. And I only had one correction. (laughs) But uh, we did our 501c3. And I realized through that past two years that I wanted to create youth programming. I wanted to create educational programming. What kind? I didn't quite know. But I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a voice that relates to the young people. I could take any amount of information and make it relatable to young people. That's my superpower. That has always been my superpower. Um, But over the course of the years, I have worked in all of the different fields. Um, I have worked in strictly political lane. And then I shifted um, into criminal justice work, well, activism work, and then into public health. Um, And what really was kind of my introduction into public health was um, being chosen as a youth ambassador for the Packard Foundation. And uh, that also happened in 2014. So that was coming out of the Mary Landrieu campaign. Um, I applied for this opportunity to become a youth ambassador for the Packer Foundation for their 50th anniversary. And um, that was the turning point into my public health work. Um, Essentially, like Packard champions reproductive health issues across the world, so globally. And so I was chosen amongst 22 youth leaders from Ethiopia, Pakistan, India, and the U.S. South um, to create reproductive health programming strategically and specifically for young women and girls in our community. I got the opportunity to create a program and then to pitch it to the Packard Board for funding and that is where Girls NOLA was born. So we've been doing Girls NOLA since 2014. That was our very first cohort. Um, actually, our first graduate who just graduated from high school was eight when she first participated in Girls NOLA. Um, and so that opportunity allowed me to really assess the needs of young women and girls in my community, and especially coming out of Hurricane Katrina and the things that, you know, I was viewing that was happening with, like, just the lack of health care, the lack of, like, 
just education and knowledge and all of these things. And as I became more and more involved in the legislative process and, you know, basically putting all of these things side by side, right? We're passing these type of bills <laughs> that are limiting sexual health education. And then STDs are, you know, rates are sky high. Like where is the, the common sense in all of this, right? And so how could I be effective in a solution? So that was where um, the concept for Girls No Look came from, access to sexual health programming. When I was in school, we had every year of high school helped one half of the semester, I mean, of the year, and PE the other half. Um, many schools have shied away from even touching the subject of sex ed because there are so many implications to it if you are not teaching it in an abstinence plus way or if you're not delivering it in a certain way. Um, and there are so many implications around women of color receiving adequate support and education, you know, um, around sexual health. And those things are the things that, as a Black woman, as a Black young woman, had become important to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I created this program called Girls NOLA because I saw that as an immediate solution to a problem. So you have been working on that. You're still working on that. You've also worked in several of the organizations that are fairly well known in the area that focus on reproductive health, reproductive mm -hmm. justice. Mm -hmm. I know you've given talks internationally on yes. this as well. So yes. you've really had a lot of experience in a lot of different like nonprofit yes. spaces and um, so you're you're bringing all of that back to what you're putting together in girls. Absolutely. Home, right? So from 2014, I would say 2015, I've been working in public health related uh, reproductive health nonprofits across the city of New Orleans. Uh, parallel to that, I was also that you champion for um, the Packer Foundation, in which. I was chosen to speak at many international conferences, including um, I've spoken in Bali, I've spoken in Denmark, I've spoken at the, the UN um, International Conference on the Status of Women. I've, to be that voice for African-American women, right? One thing I've noticed um, at these high-level international conferences there isn't a lack of Black women because women are represented from every African nation, from all over the world, right? But there is a very much so a lack of African-American women and that African-American voice. And I think it's two things, right? To the world, America does not have problems, right? America shows up on the world stage as perfect and that we don't have problems, right? Which is why when it comes to topics such as reproductive health, 
reproductive health funding is very small. Um, that portal of funding is very small into the U.S. because it's way more sexier to fund um, underdeveloped countries when it comes to those reproductive health issues. My colleagues in uh, the Packard champ you champions were were champion the cause of stopping genital mutilation and stopping child marriages. You know, in India, like. There were detrimental things that were happening to the masses in these countries, in Pakistan and India and Ethiopia. Whereas here in America, it's a very small, it's a demographic of Black women that are suffering from the lack of reproductive access and health and education, right? Um, you take abortion for example right like you're, I, you're talking about comparatively small it's not, yes, it's not a small yes, number yes, but yes. no 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. by any means right yeah. um but the fact that the the people who it affects right mm -hmm. it doesn't make it a priority and mm -hmm. on the right. world stage it it was me in those rooms screaming that black women the state of Black women in America, like, we're not the same as white America. You know, Black women are at a grave disadvantage when it comes to reproductive health disparities, when it comes to reproductive health education, when it comes to reproductive health access. And people are shocked, mm -hmm. right? You know, like, ma'am, I'm the same as you in Ethiopia. Like my access is is limited just like yours. Just the access for education, right? Is is limited. And that's where I drew all of my inspiration to pour basically all of my resources into this bucket of educating and empowering young women, right? Because it starts with them. And something as simple as going to the doctor and getting birth control, right? I've worked, I've done a lot of temp, temp work in between time in the hospitals. And I know, I know the power of pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get whatever that pharmaceutical company is pushing at that time. Whatever pharma pharmaceutical company bought lunch for that doctor's staff that month, because trust me, I've eaten a lot of their lunches <laughs> as a temp. Whatever pharmaceutical company was present in that office that bought that staff lunch, that dropped off those samples, that's what that patient who is uneducated about what works for their body and their health, that's what you're going to get. So it was important for me to educate these young women on their options, right? If you take birth control, that's one module. But every type of birth control doesn't work for everybody's lifestyle and everybody's body. So empowering young women to understand what works for me, what works for my body, what works for my lifestyle. That is the power of this program. That is the power of Girls NOLA. And I do want to talk about your program. So we're going to get into that. You are currently, so I've mentioned that you've worked in all these other spaces. You've mentioned that you've tempted in healthcare and you've worked for a lot of... <laughs> 
<laughs> nonprofit organizations. And you're currently, uh, can I mention that you're working at YEP? Yeah. Um, so the Youth Empowerment Project, you also work mm -hmm. there doing educational work with kids in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're still doing Girls NOLA mm -hmm. and DSEF as a side project. Mm -hmm. Just out of curiosity, what would it take for you to be able to do that as your full time position? Money, yeah. resources. Yeah. I mean, that's the only thing standing in the way of what we do. We we really run fully full-fledged programming, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but I love my work at Yup. I get to impact the lives of young people every single day. Um, I'm a program manager at the youth center. I run create programming from athletics to um art to music, dance, whatever you could imagine, whatever the kids want. I created you're, you're out in the Mardi Gras parade. And listen, <laughs> yes, I have elevated, yep, to Mardi Gras parades. And so I love the work that I do, like just to be able to be hands-on with the young people, impacting the lives of young people every single day. If I had to have a mission, if I had to have a model, that would be it. Um, regardless of what capacity, like just being influential and shaping the trajectory of the lives of young people like that is who I am and that is who I want to show up as um and you know so yeah I do that every day as my day job yep pays the, the mortgage right um but my love and passion and that's no secret to no one is my baby which is the SEF and girls NOLA and boys NOLA which is what we've also created um, for agenda specific for the boys. And that's what I love. And that's what, you know, essentially I would someday do. So, yeah. So I really want to talk to you about the programming you're working on. And I know a good bit about what mm -hmm. you do. So tell me, DSEF, when you initially created it, was sort of to fill in that open space that you saw a need for in the educational mm -hmm. system, but you've really pivoted. It isn't your greater focus now? And I know you've added boys NOLA, but you're, it, hasn't your greatest focus been girls NOLA? And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it, it's there's reproductive health and education, but there's cultural education mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it, it seems like it's a mentorship based mm -hmm. program also. Mm -hmm. So can you explain how that Yeah, works? absolutely. So when I created DSEF, um, which is stands for the Denaro Shavers Educational Fund, um, the common thread is education, right? And for me, it's about making education fun and integrating art and gamification into the work. Right. And so essentially because of who we are, who we started as and who Denaro was, our first program um, that we ever created, like first curriculum was our music and culture education program. Um, and it's basically a music and culture education curriculum that teaches young people about New Orleans culture and New Orleans cultural history, which is something that is still very important to us. Um, the next program that we created was Girls NOLA. And that came from, that's solely me, right? 
So the music and cultural piece, that is representative of De Niro and who he was and who I believe we are, you know, as an organization. Girls Nola was all me. <laughs> you know, we've talked a lot on, on this podcast about campaigning and politics and advocacy. And so there is that political space where we try to elect officials who are going to do the things we need to protect women and make sure, you know, women and children, families are healthy and vulnerable people are protected. And we have all these advocates and activists who are doing the policy work and the advocacy work, going to the legislature and mm -hmm. trying to get the legislation passed. And so this sort of, to me, completes it's like the third leg of the stool, right? Is yeah. that nonprofit space where you're directly reaching out to the impacted people, the people who mm -hmm. are directly impacted or, or would be directly impacted if someone doesn't get to them in time. Um, yeah. So that that's sort of the piece where I feel like you play in all three legs of the stool, but this is really the other piece of that. Yeah, I, Your focus really is in working directly with people who yeah. are affected by the laws that are passed against them or the lack of laws yeah. to protect them. So that's sort of what, why I wanted yeah. to kind of bring this in. And this is mm -hmm. generally the, the focus that I wanted to put on this season is all yeah. these ways that our nonprofits are yeah. picking up the slack where our yeah. laws and our legislation are not protecting people. Yeah. So that's really sort of where I wanted to go with that. So um, tell me then what, what it is you're doing. And I, you know, and I, the DSEF is generally a really great umbrella and you're doing great work, but the girls, the girls know piece yeah. is sort yeah. of that important piece, particularly in the world, the post yeah. Dobbs post row yeah. world we're living in today where yes young women, girls, people who can get pregnant are so incredibly vulnerable right now. Yes. 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 So girls, NOLA, um, it is a two part program. Um, track one is our 11 modules sexual health program. Um, with this curriculum, we teach young women, everything from, puberty and anatomy um, to STDs, HIV, um, condom demonstrations, contraception, uh, mental health, social emotional health. Uh, we teach about sex, self-esteem, uh, teen sex and the Louisiana law. Like everything you could think of, we have built a curriculum um, to, to help with that. Our program is catered to young people from the ages of eight to 18. Um, when we go into certain schools or certain programs, we have enough material to basically tailor a curriculum to a specific age group. Um, and so our track one program, our sexual health program could be administered one of two ways. Number one, pre-COVID era, we were 100% in person. So we would partner with 
churches, community organizations, schools to go into that space and teach our curriculum. Um, when COVID happened, we were stuck. We were literally in the process of starting our fall 2020. We had our new cohort about to start, spring 2020 cohort that was about to start. And just like the rest of the world, we had to shift and explore virtual options. So we created our virtual programming. So now for track one, which is strictly our sexual health curriculum, we administer that one or two ways. We do partner with all of these different spaces throughout the year, but we also host a virtual cohort, which we found to have the greatest reach. Mm -hmm. So with our virtual classes, we not only reach young women and girls all across the state, I mean, all across the city of New Orleans, but we have had young people from all across the state join us. We have had young women from out of state. We've had, we have a graduate from Houston, we have a graduate from Michigan. Um, so we have impacted young women even outside of the state of Louisiana. So how, for our virtual- How how are you finding these people? Like uh, the either the churches or schools you're partnering with or the yes. individuals you're doing the virtual, how do you so find when them? We, so when we have a specific target for location, so say if a school contact us to come into the school or an organization contact us to come into their, their space, essentially that's, you know, they do the recruitment for that programming. So maybe how do, they, school, how do they find you? How do they find you? Like, how do they know you exist? I guess I'm asking. From the community, just from you. the work that we're already doing. Like the name is out there, right? Okay. Um, what we caution is that the thing is, I know there is a need for this program. However, there is a lack of resources. Mm -hmm. So for me, the greatest issue is not with finding the schools, finding the capacity, you know, all of these things, is with keeping it at a balance where we're not overreaching with the limited resources that we have. So for me, that is the greatest challenge, to be honest. Um, with the schools, community organizations, um, it's a little bit easier because they do the recruitment. It's essentially their demographic of young people that they want us to come in and educate. So it's an opt-in program. So Everyone has to have a consent form signed by parents. Parents have to understand everything that we're teaching the young people, you know, and all of these things. So on a school partnership in or the organizational partnership in, they take care of that. You know, they get the consents, they collect the, you know, all of these things. When we do our virtual cohort, which is what we're gearing up for this coming fall, we advertise throughout the TV, radio, newspaper, and that is open to all of the young women and girls across the city of New Orleans. However, space is limited because we have limited funding and limited resources. But this is the most important piece for me because even if your school didn't call for us to come in, if your parents see the need, if you see the need, if you would like to be a part of this, you can. And for our virtual program, we meet um, every Monday for 10 weeks 
for one hour and each week we cover a different topic. Prior to the start of the program, we have a parent, a mandatory parent orientation. We have a check-in with all of the parents because also it's opt-in. So it's you seeing this flyer somewhere on the internet and clicking and filling out this application for your child, right? And so we have a, a, a check-in with that parent. We have an orientation with all of the parents where we introduce DSEF, our work, girls know what we do to them. And every Sunday, the parents get an overview of what we will be discussing on that Monday. It's a very involved program, right? Prior to the beginning of that program, our girls knowledge staff do porch drop-offs to every last one of those girls. Every girl receives a binder with their girls NOLA packet, with every lesson, their workbook, every lesson, we have lessons, every lesson that they will cover, they get a notebook, they get school supplies, everything that they will need. We build um, sensory kits. We build, we teach them for our mental health modules. We teach them about- What's a sensory kit? When you say you build a sensory kit, what's that? So we teach them about um, for our mental health lessons, for our social emotional lessons. We teach them about identifying stressors and coping skills. And when I was a kid, my mom used to say, girl, you ain't got no stress, you ain't got no nerves. Ma'am, yes, I do have nerves. And yes, I do have stress. These kids are stressed out. They need an outlet. They need a safe space to express themselves. And we teach them how to identify those stressors. We teach them positive coping skills. With our social-emotional um, lessons, we build sensory kits. And it's basically teaching them how to be in tune with their different senses, right? We have five senses, sense of touch, sense of smells, sense of hearing, you know, all of these different things. We teach them how to be in tune with these different senses and how they can become a coping skill, right? And so... With that, for instance, in their package that they receive, they also receive like uh, supplies to create stress balls um, or supplies to create um, uh, aromatherapy masks, right? Where we infuse rice with aromatherapy oils and then put them in a sock and tie that sock and then that sock becomes an aromatherapy mask that they could warm in the microwave for 10 seconds, put over their eyes when they're stressed out and help them to fall asleep. You know, like different, we have so many different activities that like the goal is to help them to build a sensory kit at the end that would help them when they're stressed out, when they're mad at somebody, pissed off at the world, Okay, before I pop off, let me take a few seconds. Let me find my girl's knowledge sensory kit and let me calm down before I be in trouble, you know? And those are the things we try to pour into these young people because we're all having a hard time. Mm -hmm. And even uh, what I've noticed, like I have amazing instructors. What I've noticed, one of the most important things is creating that safe space, right? Creating a space where young people don't feel judged, where they don't feel, you know, they don't feel obligated to 
you know, show up like you want them to show up, but you allow them to show up how they can. Because our kids are really going through a lot. Mm-hmm. Our parents are going through a lot. Mm-hmm. My mentees, like their parents reach out to me every day. Like, how do I handle this situation? How do I handle that situation? I'm not a mama, but I could tell you how I would handle it. Right. So we create these spaces for them. So all of that is our girls who will attract one. The really amazing thing is our young people who have participated in our programming are very instrumental in a trajectory that our program has taken. So we had girls that literally would take the sexual health cohort over and over and over and over. And finally, they're like, Mr. Kita, what's next? And so during COVID, there was a great need for some personal like interactions, relationships. Let me put my hand on you. Let me let me take you out. Let me take you out of this space and let me spend time with you. Let me pour into you. And so the young women that I had at the time requested that we, can we go out to eat? Can we have sleepovers? Can we can we just be around you? And that was the start of our Girls NOLA mentorship program. I brought these women together with these young women who were create, who were craving that love and that nurturing and that mentorship. And I created what is now called Track Two. And it's our Girls NOLA mentorship program. And each of our girls who are a Girls NOLA mentee are a graduate of Track One. They've done the work. They've done the hard part, whether we went to their school, their organization, whether they sat online and did our virtual programming. They have done the work. They've done everything that was required of them. And they are now allowed to join our mentorship program. And this group of girls, it has organically created a, a sisterhood. Tell me about the pink drive. Yes. Yeah, so the pink drive. So for me, you know, community work, community activism, giving back is is it's a very big part of of my heart and my life. And so, because we do so much for our girls, um, I definitely it's important to me to teach them the value of giving back to others. And so, I created this initiative called the Girls Know the Pink Drive, where we partner with Turo Hospitals Burton Center, um, the mayor's, uh, the the youth and family, um, youth and family services, and we host this pink drive every year. We collect feminine hygiene, health, self care products for girls, and then we collect them. We package them and we go out to the different schools and we distribute them. And and tell me about like how that went this year. I was just on a Zoom with you not that long ago where you were reporting yes. the numbers. And uh, yeah, so tell us how, how many. Uh... Yeah, so this was also an initiative that started <laughs> during COVID. Yeah. And so over the years, um, this was our third year. We started in 2020, I think. Um, we hit about 150 2020, about 250 last year. And I would say this year 
we've reached currently to this day as of last week, um, about 350 bags over 15 schools and nonprofit organizations. So when you say bags, you have bags that you're filling with feminine hygiene products and self-care products and distributing them to places where young girls are going to get those. Yes. Yes. Each bag, the basics are the same with feminine hygiene. And then the self-care part may change from bag to bag, but you could guarantee that every bag is packaged with love because it's packaged by our girls that come together um, and they sort through all of the donations and it's a whole process, you know, and then they form an assembly line and package all of the bags. It's a very beautiful process seeing it come together and seeing these girls. And also this year, in particular, I challenged our girls to host their own drives. And I put a wager on it, of course. But I, I challenged them to host their own drives um, within their communities and their families and their schools. And we've got donations from pretty much all of them, but there were three that really stood out. And I mean, they collected just as much as we collected from our drop-off locations. They did a really good job. And I was very impressed um, with our young people and, and their families that really took the time to pour into this process. Well, and I love the idea of normalizing these things that every woman at some point or other has to buy or get her hands on. Yeah. So I, I I really love that, that you're making that a. Absolutely. Um, any one thing that you, you will learn any space that myself and our instructors enter it's normalized. Right. And that happens in the first two modules, right? Once you hit that puberty module, and and I think that is very important in every girl's life. Not one young woman on this earth should be embarrassed about having a period, should be embarrassed about, you know, feminine hygiene and those sorts of things. Like we very much so create that safe space. That mental health class was, this past session was probably one of the most intense, gratifying, loving, nurturing spaces that I've ever witnessed in Girls and Boys NOLA. We had young people who were really pouring their hearts out into the stress, the everyday stress And the family dynamic situations, the personal, the self-harming, like all of these different things that they had gone through, that they had been through. Um, And it was very, it was that moment for me, this is why we do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, Even for to see the young men open up and these same young men, like, man, nobody... I ain't talking, you know, but it took one to express, you know, the the pressures of like feeling the need to be, be, you know, bring money into the household. How do you bring money into the household when you're 15? How do you bring money in the household when you're 14? You can't even legally get a job. 
you know, and these are the things that our young people are dealing with every single day. And once one expressed it, then they all expressed all of the things that they were dealing with. And they were able to help each other cope with those things. But I think this is so important, Nikita. There is a national conversation. So I I mentioned the importance of the work you're doing with the the girls and the young women, how we've ended up in this space where that's folks we really need to protect and, and nurture. There is a national conversation on boys and young men not getting the kind of attention you're talking and how and in general, there's a conversation going on about how we are, loneliness is an epidemic. People are so married to their phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and COVID has played a, a role in that as well. But mm-hmm. there is a national conversation going on about the epidemic of loneliness. And what you're talking about is giving people a safe place to go find community at a young mm-hmm. age a safe place to go find community where they're getting educated on things that matter to them as they transition from young people to adults and the opportunity to express themselves and, and find others, find people who understand them and are like them. And I, that's so critical. And again, this dovetailed into the politics, the politics of today and how Mm -hmm. a lot of what we see of the extreme partisanship and the extreme anger and, and the inability to have conversations with folks who don't see eye to eye with us kind of comes from the space where people aren't being nurtured and, and raised in these kind of spaces like you're creating. So I think this is, critical work, not just for those individuals, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. for the community as a whole. And it's something that really needs to be done at a national scale. I'm not suggesting you have to take on doing it at a national scale, but what would it require to, to do this sort of thing at scale, Nikita? Um, I mean, for me, I, I need myself. You know, I need. So how would would you get support? How would someone support this? Like, I know that you operate on grants, so you you need Mm -hmm. grants for it, but there also can be individual donors, I suppose. Yes. Um, We are, we are currently looking for donors, sponsors, um, grant support. You know, we're, I'm selling out grants every single day. Um, the, the, The need is there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even sponsors for, you know, things for our girls, things for our program participants, things for our young people. Um, there are ways to spot and we're actually creating a sponsorship thing right now for Girls NOLA, like ways that people could sponsor. We take these girls on outings once to twice a month. You know, um, all of those things are, you know, could be sponsored we uh, host these different cohorts. Like everything could be broken down to the dollar sign um, mm-hmm. that can make this program a success. But I mean, there's definitely a need. There's definitely a need. And these babies need us. Well, so, so I mean, I think it's A, you need to be able to grow your program. And I think mm-hmm. the other piece is becoming a model 
that can be mm -hmm. duplicated. And I'm always mm -hmm. looking for models that can be duplicated mm -hmm. elsewhere. So um, I will definitely put in the episode notes how to, you know, participate with y'all, how to reach out to you, how to donate all of that. We'll put, I'll get that information from you so you can have it in the episode okay. notes so folks can find that information. I think it's really important that folks know that part of the reason this need is so great, and you kind of alluded to it before, is that there. I've known people who have gone to the legislature year after year after year trying to get them to pass age appropriate sex mm -hmm. education to be taught in schools. Mm -hmm. And we are just not in a space right now where that's going to happen in the state, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, it's sort of dodgy because there are those sort of restrictions that if you are going to teach something, it has to be abstinence-based, which is, mm -hmm. as we know, not particularly great. And um, we do have these HIV and other STD issues still happening in the state. We've now got uh, situations where young women who want to be pregnant are still at risk because of not being able to be treated. Infant mortality, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and it, doctors just being afraid to treat them if they have a problem pregnancy. So these are all things that are happening that what you're doing is filling in the gap for. But what I love, Nikita, that you're doing also is that this, this is heavy stuff. And we're talking about advocacy and dangers and risks and but what you're doing is for the most part enjoyable for them. And you talk a lot mm -hmm. about gamification. Mm -hmm. And I want you to explain what you mean when you're talking about gamification of your materials. Yes. Um, so I, like I said earlier, my superpower is taking any type of information and making it youth friendly, making it so our kids will love it, appreciate it, and understand it. And for me, that's integrating art and gamification. Like I could create curriculums for just about anything. Um, and I love games. I love creating games. And um, for Girls NOLA, I thrive off of creating games to help our young people retain the knowledge. And so... We have, um, we've done, we have like Girls Nola Jeopardy, Girls Nola Family Feud. We have, um, I'm in a process of creating an actual sexual health card game. And I have some other really cool games in the works that, you know, I do in, on my own time. But, but yeah, like our, our, our curriculum is filled with um, games and art activities because art is very therapeutic as well. You trying to do any of this online or in apps or anything? Yeah, I'm I'm actually in the process of like putting my options together and and you know, I think that's definitely an option. And that's something that someone if they are in the tech community might be able to partner mm -hmm. with you and help. Yes, I would get love something that. like that together. Yes. We started this talking about we met on the Mary Landrew campaign. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to give you a moment, and I think you found a way to do something very positive that's helping people. So I don't want to pivot from that too much, but you've also since become very disillusioned with politics. And I kind of mm -hmm. wanted to give you an opportunity 
uh, mm-hmm. to speak on that, if there's mm-hmm. if any of that information you wanted to share. I always felt that, you know, nonprofit allows me to make that immediate impact on people's lives. But politics is where the real impact happens, the policy, the legislation. Um, you really, you know, we could be able you can to- change lots yeah. of people's lives in one film. Right, right. And and so for me, politics was always my in game. Politics was always my love. It was my first love. Political science, pre-law major, you know, like that was really my first love. Somewhere in between the last three years, I've lost that fire. I've lost that love. What changed? The game. The game changed. Or maybe the game didn't change, but for me, it unveiled itself, right? And and call me a fool, but I always thought that politics, the ultimate goal was to help people. Um, I always thought that the ultimate goal was to fight for, to be the voice for the people that otherwise would be heard, right? Even the people that I thought was supposed to help and save the community, the people that I looked up to and the the people that I thought had my best interest and our best interest at heart, I realized it was just a game. You know, everyone is playing this game. And I was always that person that spoke life into the other folks that didn't really care about politics. When I was on Mary's campaign, like, I thrived on going in the trenches. I was in a hood talking to my people. I was I could talk to the drug dealers. I could talk to the people on the I could talk to anybody that didn't care about politics and break it down politics one on one and help them understand how this person in this position could make an impact on the things that are important in their lives. Right? I feel like right now the state of the country, the state of our state, the state of our city is a very critical and fragile moment. And it is very important that we have the right people in place. And I just feel like, unfortunately for me, I have been privileged to be in spaces where I don't believe in many of the people that have been put or will be put in place. I don't I'm just not interested in the machines and the games and the all of the things. I don't want to be a part of a game. I just want to be a part of a solution. And as I've straddled that fence for the majority of my adult life and into politics and I've dabbled into nonprofit, you know, I've played a very important role from my point of view in both worlds, but I've come all the way over the fence from politics to nonprofit in this present moment because I'm exhausted mentally. Well, I think you probably voice the concerns of a lot of people. And you know, I agree that what's what politics is possible or what what is possible with politics is to do good for your community and to be there to make things better for people. 
And we do seem to be in a space right now for some folks where power is more important mm -hmm. and that is not unique to one party or the other. I remain hopeful that there is a space where people who do care about others and who are entering politics for the right reasons can still be successful. What I'd love to see and what I hope will happen is that the people like you with your heart to serve will learn how to win elections mm -hmm. and be the folks who end up being the leaders. I, I, mm -hmm. I hope that that's true someday. I know there are a few out there, but obviously not enough. Obviously mm -hmm. not enough. Yeah. And I definitely have hope. I haven't lost hope. You're not closing the door. I'm not closing the door. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, Nikita, <laughs> let's pivot to the last three questions. I ask a version of every episode. And because you have some political background, I'll, I'll ask you th this this way. What's the biggest obstacle for Democrats? Regardless of which part of the scale we fall, um, our goal should be united and we should have a common goal. And I think somewhere along the lines, we've forgotten the battle that we're fighting. And it's become not just a uphill battle, you know, compromising and fighting with the Republicans, but we're, it's so much infighting within one another. And, and the thing is, I don't think the infighting is even necessarily ideological. Like it's not political ideological stances, it's power, right? Like who wants the most power in the party? And it, and it, and it has blinded us as a party from the real goal. Um, so I think our biggest obstacles is ourselves. And, mm -hmm. and I think for me, that's the exhausting part. So then what's the biggest opportunity for Democrats? If we revert the attention and the focus back to the constituents, the people, the, the needs of the people, because if you're going by, when you thought about running in 2018, and you going off those same needs, those needs have drastically changed mm -hmm, mm -hmm. over the course of the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. So if you're not reassessing and taking a tone, if you're tone deaf to what the community actually needs, if you're tone deaf to what is happening in these communities on a national level, if you aren't in tune with what is happening from state to state, what is happening in, in these different uh, congressional districts, like you are going to lose those votes, plain and simple. The need of the people has changed and the greatest opportunity we can have is not just doing your, um, your what is your name recognition, um, Trying to, trying to poll on your name recognition, but trying to do some polls on what what are your people suffering? Mm -hmm. Like, what do what your people need? Like, what, why would they choose you? 
What causes should you champion? Because that's the basis of politics. And there's too many people out here flying blind, mm-hmm. right? You just going by, you know, back in the day when I wanted to run, this is what I'm running on. Nah, because a couple of big things has happened in society. And these people are hurting out here. Democrats are already at a disadvantage because, I mean, let's face it, the majority of Democrats don't have money right, like right. the Republicans have money. Right. So what you do need is even if you can't run those campaign ads like the Republicans can, even if you can't bust through my Pandora station while I'm trying to listen to my 2000 R&B, you need to be able to articulate their needs. You need to be able to be a champion for what those people are going through. The greatest opportunity, it don't even cost money. Get out there in your districts, in your communities, survey these people, knock on those doors and see what is important. Don't go knock on their door and ask for their vote. Knock on their doors, introduce yourself and ask them what are the top issues that are important to them. And that's what you run on. And that's how you get their attention. So that's the opportunity. I agree with you. And Nikita, who's your favorite superhero? Oh, I would say Olivia Pope. But then. (laughs) That's all right. Olivia Pope is definitely my favorite superhero. I love it. That's fantastic. (laughs) I love it. Uh So you haven't given up on politics completely then? I have not. I've just given up (laughs) on the pool of people we have personally. Fair. Nikita, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me about the work you're doing that's so vital to our community. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So many more of you. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you, Linda. It's been fun. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty. Jen Pack of Black Cat Studios for our super lefty artwork and Thousand Dollar Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana lefty theme song.